Welcome in. It is Downtown, the podcast. Episode number 115. Rich Kimball and Carrie Haskell joining you from the Zone Radio Studios in Bangor, Maine. It's where we do our daily show, Downtown, Monday through Friday, from 4 to 6 in the afternoon Eastern Time, on the Zone Radio stations of Maine and all around the world with streaming audio at our website, downtownwithrichkimball.com. We're brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. And uh, two very interesting conversations on the program this week with two of the more talented, interesting, and, and nicest guys that we deal with on our show and in the entertainment business. Actor, director, producer, writer, Mark Duplass, actor, author, bibliophile, Curtis Armstrong coming up on the program this time around. Uh, we get it underway by welcoming back Mark Duplass, a frequent visitor on our radio show. You know Mark from, well, I don't know how many things you know him from. Uh, several years working on the hit series, The League. He has been a producer, writer, director, and actor in a, a number of wonderful films like Paddleton and Blue Jay. He's appeared in other people's films and television shows, including a, a role that's getting a lot of Emmy buzz as Chip Black in The Morning Show. Along with his brother Jay, he owns Duplass Brothers Productions and their series, wonderful anthology on HBO called Room 104, getting ready to kick off its final season this week. And so we had a chance to catch up with Mark and talk about Room 104's fourth and final season and much more. How are you doing during the quarantine and everything else that's going on? You know, relatively speaking, we are really, really fortunate, and I'm glad of that every day that we have our help and we're fortunate to be able to work from home um so uh all things considered we're doing we're doing okay thanks for asking glad to hear that well let's talk about room 104 the final season gets underway uh friday night the 24th and uh looking at the preview of it and excited to see what's coming up including another episode uh written and also this time directed by lauren budd yeah man this is like one of my favorite things about our our show is its ability to sort of foster and mentor up-and-coming filmmakers and up-and-coming voices. And, uh, yeah, Bangor's own Lauren Budd is, like, I would say a definitive example of uh, when the show works, it really works well. Because, you know, when she was 19, she started interning with us and, and got very curious about Room 104. And then she wrote... Uh, her first episode, which aired in, in season two when she was just 19, which is, I think, I was one of the youngest actual writing credits on an HBO show mm. in history. And um, and then this season, she wrote and directed an episode called Hikers. That um, It's actually an episode that uh, it's an idea for one that I've had for a long time, but I haven't felt like I was the right person to do it. It's really about these two young post-college grad girls who decide to hike the Appalachian Trail, and, and it reveals a bunch of problems in their friendship. And um, that's another thing that I just love about this show, which is I can have an idea, realize that I'm not the best person to do it, and I can tap somebody like Lauren to partner with and hand it over to her. And, and you know, it's, it's one of my favorite episodes of the season, and so I'm just so proud of her and, and it. Uh, looks like we'll also get to see you as, uh, shall we say, a mysterious musician? I think that's fair to say, yeah. <laughs> um, I star in an episode which is uh, entitled The Murderer, um, which is 
it's a fictional episode about a, a fictional singer songwriter who released this sort of hit record in the in the nineties in the in the underground scene and then disappeared. You know, almost like that documentary Searching for Sugar Man. Mm. And um and then these these group of fanboys finds him one night and, and he agrees to play the entire record for them in room one oh four if they will bring a keg of Keystone Light beer for him. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> so it's just sort of, uh, you know, almost like Fargo-like comedic thriller episode about meeting your heroes um, and finding out things that you never wanted to find out about them. That sounds great. Uh, who are some of the other faces that we'll see on this fourth season? Man, this is a really fun season to make because not only did, were we able to bring in a lot of people that we have wanted to work with for a while, um, you know, uh, Dave Bautista, who is just, I think, the, one of the more underrated actors out there. We all know him as a huge, you know, wrestler and, and movie star and Marvel movies and such. But um, he puts in a dramatic performance in this that I, I just didn't know he had in him. And and uh, Jillian Bell from Brittany Runs a Marathon is, joins us this season. And um, And one of the real fun things, I think, about season four for me was cracking different forms and different ways of telling stories in, in Room 104. I mean, we have an episode that's fully animated. We have an episode that's done mostly uh, with dolls and mannequins. Uh, we have a an episode that is in the 80s sitcom format. Um, <laughs> so we just kind of, knowing this was probably going to be our last season, we just kind of, uh, you know, we did the senior year thing, which is like, well, I'm already in college. They can't fail me, so let's just go for it. <laughs> well, that's been one of the great things about this series is uh, you've got this premise of the single motel room, and that has left it open to so many different interpretations. And uh, I think it's it's just been a wonderful ride, and I'm excited for the new season, but sad to see it come to an end. Yeah, you know, we were we were bummed to see it come to an end, but I think, honestly, our perspective is the way the TV works now is there's so much stuff out there, right? We, you, you probably like everyone else have 500 movies and TV shows on your queue that you want to get to. So unless you're really a big hit after the first season, you pretty much get canceled. Um, and the fact that HBO let us make this very strange late night show with full creative control, they let me cast whoever I want in front of the camera and give jobs to first time filmmakers like, Lauren, but in particular, you know, when we started the show, like, and it's still a problem, like the, the preponderance of, of women and persons of color directing TV is just still low. And so they, they let us do so much with it and they gave us four seasons. So I'm trying to take the high road <laughs> of, you know what, I'm not going to be fussy that I don't get any more. I'm going to be grateful that I was able to have this ride. Season three was terrific, and I, I think I was most excited to see uh, your your creep partner Patrick Bryce involved in several episodes. Yeah, he's been such a great collaborator of mine through the years, and um, and really one of my close friends. and And that really is true for the whole show. You know, Julian Wass is a producer this year, and he he's the person I make my musical episodes with because he started off as the composer of the show and really kind of got promoted into, you know, the writing and, and producing chair from there. And I really try to, you know, when I'm talking to younger filmmakers or, or people who are interested in, in making TV, like 
building that family environment of trust around yourself is is critical. And you don't always get it right. You don't always get lucky. You know, we had it on our on the on the league, honestly, because it was all of our first big jobs, and we felt like freshmen in college, and we all bonded up, and we've been close ever since. And 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 we had a lot of it on Room One Hundred Four too. We're talking with Mark Duplass on downtown. I have to bring up your role as Chip Black in the morning show. Uh, such a wonderful series. And and just within the frame of season one, the development of your character as you know, a good guy, um, you know, maybe the moral center of the show. But, but by the time we get to the end of the season, Chip's got the realization that you know, maybe he hasn't done enough along the way. I think that's a really astute analysis of Chip. And it's something that I've been thinking a lot about lately is, um, what does it mean to be on the right side of the story and the right side of history? And I think for a long time, particularly, uh, you know, white males in positions of power, um, they have just rested comfortably on the idea that as long as they're not doing anything bad, they are a good person. Mm. And I think that uh, there's a theory now that's coming around that is uh, you have to be actively stopping those bad things. You have to be actively fostering a culture that is intolerant of those things if you have a position of power. And if you don't, maybe you shouldn't be in a position of power. And, I mean, Chip has that realization in the middle of season one, which I think that's a, a really interesting arc, you know. Um, and I think everyone that I know who is experiencing whatever relative position of power they have, um, what is the right thing that they can do, you know, in the midst of last year's Me Too surge, in the midst of, um, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement? and and what's your place going to be? And I think everyone's rethinking that, and I think that's a really painful thing, but a very good thing. And you've talked about bringing this into your own professional life and a Duplass Brothers Productions, and well, you've done a wonderful job by getting new people into the business and giving them opportunities, but, but you look to expand uh, your horizons and your efforts too. Yeah, I think, you know, Room 104 is actually, I think, a really good example of the direction we would like to head as a company. Um, You know, it's a show that's not about me and Jay's personal vision. It's a show about us partnering with those people whose voices have been underrepresented for whatever reason. Um, And what what it allows us to do is to be, you know, less of, oh, this is the Coen brothers and their vision. It's more of, you know, I call it uncle energy, really. It's like, I want to be able to give people their first shot. And Room 104 has been, you know, this wonderful springboard for people who, you know, Sarah Smith got her first directing job with us, and then she went off and directed two seasons of, of that show, Hannah, for, for Amazon. It signed a huge deal there, and, and Janae Lamarck started with us, and, and then she was going on to direct, you know, 10 other um, episodic television shows. And and so, you know, I think if, if I'm doing the best I can do, I think, I am I'm giving people a lift, um, but I'm also giving the right people a lift who who definitely need that and who haven't had that before. So, you know, it's a large conversation happening everywhere. We're a small part of it. We're just trying to do our best. Uh, your chemistry with Jennifer Aniston is so great in the morning show. Is that is that something that that can be done through writing, through acting, or does there have to be some sort of personal connection there to really make it come through? That's a really good question. I, I think I don't have the answer for that, but I know that, um, you know, my wife, Katie, who obviously also grew up in Maine, she, one of her real strengths is she can create chemistry with a brick wall. I mean, you put her in with anybody and, and it's amazing what she can do. I don't have that level of, of skill or 
I maybe it's because she's such a deep empath, but in the case of Jen Aniston and and me in the morning show, um, we I think got really lucky because we just very much like each other. Um, and there's a giddiness because we had been wanting to work together for quite a few years that that really helps buoy that relationship because in the show, obviously, we're pretty terrible to each other sometimes, <laughs> you know. So you really want that baseline chemistry to to make it a stomachable relationship to to watch. Um, and uh, I'm excited to see where we where we go in season two and, and you know, and where Chip's character goes because, you know, he clearly has a torch for her in some way, shape, or form that he has not really dealt with. And um, he's also lost all of his power. And what does it mean to be, you know, a white male who once had power and had that taken away? I think that's really... Um, if you're going to tell a story these days about a white male, then that's probably the better version of it. Did you guys get to shoot any of next season's episodes before the shutdown? Yeah, we were on about episode two when we safely shut down, thank God. And uh, I know that Carrie Aaron, our showrunner, is working on some rewrites with this downtime because, you know, it's funny. It's like uh, history repeats itself. In season one, they wrote almost the whole season, and then the Me Too movement happened, and they rewrote all those scripts in order to incorporate the Me Too movement, and she felt like it was important. So I don't know exactly what she's doing, but I know that she is uh, incorporating where we are now in some way, shape, or form into what will eventually become season two, and um, I am uh, just as curious as you are as to what that's going to be. <laughs> What's next in your relationship with Netflix and HBO? You know, it's great these days, honestly. We feel so fortunate, particularly to have a home at HBO where they let me make things like Room 104 and Animals. Um, and so, um, you know, what we're trying to do right now is, as a company is really <clears throat> make things that feel impactful. Um, and I know that sounds kind of generic, but I think when you really think about it, it comes from two places. I don't need to clutter up anybody's Netflix or HBO Max Q with more shows that are just middling and like other things that have come out. If we're going to make something, we want to make a count. That's really important to us. Um, and we're thinking a lot about how we can be making things safely inside of the pandemic. And what's fun about that is that it really is a return to our roots when we, you know, came up to Millbridge and Bangor and, and shot the puppy chair 15 right. years ago. We didn't know what we were doing. We were kids with a camera and we just made it up as we went along. And, it is kind of uh, it's kind of even the playing field right now because without the ability to return to traditional production anytime soon, everybody needs shows and movies to air, and anybody can swing their bat and and make it work. So um, it's a little bit of a return to form for us of you know how do we make movies inside of our homes or through video conference, uh, you know literal found footage movies, radio plays on on podcasts. So. We're getting really creative with that stuff and, and, and just trying to have fun with it. When you talk about uh, helping lift people up, uh, I saw this week uh, your partnership with the Northwest Film Forum uh, to honor the wonderful talent and, and great friend and collaborator of yours on, on films like Comte and, and your sister's sister, uh, Lynn Shelton, and the Of a Certain Age grant. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, my... Uh... My friendship and my creative partnership with Lynn was really special for me on many fronts. Um, we could go on for hours about it, but I think that um, what was very unique about Lynn is that she didn't make her first 
feature film until she was almost 40 years old. And I think that there is, for whatever reason, a little bit of ageism in the film industry. It's looked at as, you know, who's the young up-and-coming filmmaker. We always say that without even thinking about it. And we thought it would be really nice to honor her legacy. And because she's not around to continue it, we could continue for her, her support, you know, in particular for, for women um, who are 40 and over so that they can have their chance to do what Lynn did. And, I mean, I mean, who better to tell an empathetic, um, beautiful human story than someone who has lived longer um, and has those experiences? And, and so, you know, we we sort of generated this idea that there would be a yearly grant uh, for a woman in that, in that zone so that she could get to make her first movie. And we, we thought it would be small, you know, and, and um, we put up some money for it. And then as soon as we started talking about it, it, people just started pouring in. So we ended up collaborating with a much larger circle of people. And now we have $25,000 a year uh, to give to someone to have their first shot when they're, you know, least expecting it because that really was that really was Lynn and you know and and uh and she was able to do so much with it I loved all her films and we were so lucky we got to talk with her last summer uh, after the release of Sword of Trust and she was just one of those people that even over the phone five minutes in it was like we had known each other for 10 years yeah talk about a chemistry generator I mean Lynn really had that and she really had that light and you know but so wonderful about Lynn is that there was a um, there was sort of an effervescence to her that our industry tends to beat out of people for better or worse you know? <laughs> um, and she she maintained that excitement and that uh, enthusiasm and and I think that in that way she's a very good model for people to to be around and she was a really great mentor and never forgot where she came from um would always take the email or the phone call for someone asking for advice who who didn't uh you know she wasn't gonna benefit from them she did it only to help and um i I really want to try to continue that legacy as much as i can mark your social media presence has always been so very positive and and we've talked about it before we're so divided in this country right now the fact that wearing masks has become a political issue how do we how do we get to the other side of this? And, and I guess, how do we welcome people back when it's all over? You tell me, man, I would love <laughs> to know. I don't, I don't really know. You know, um, I do ultimately, uh, you know, in my core, I'm like a person who was raised as a Catholic and a Christian. And although I'm not practicing now, like that made an indelible mark on me. Um, and the, the tenets of treat others, how you want to be treated. Um, it's just something I try to hold on to in my deepest confusion and I hope it comes back and I hope things swing around and, um, I don't, I don't really know what's going to happen, obviously, but, um, I, I can't not remain hopeful because it is the essence of my personality and because also I'm a dad and I have kids in my house and I want them to see that. Uh, by the way, our producer Carrie is now a New Orleans homeowner. Uh, really? Yeah. Have you got any advice for him? Because he's he's waiting for his daughter to graduate from college, and then I think he's out of here. And <laughs> Carrie, are you are you ready to become a full time New Orleans resident? I am. Yeah. We uh, we bought a house back in 2018 over uh, over near City Park. Um, oh my God, that's so beautiful over there. I mean, I can't tell you the memories that I have. There's a Thanksgiving Day five mile race 
um, that we used to do as a family because, you know, in New Orleans, you know what you're going to do to yourself the rest of the day. So you try to get your run in before that happens. <laughs> um, and, um, and, and it's right there through that park. And I went to middle school in that park and um, played tennis with my, with my dad. He taught me how to play tennis out there. I mean, look, New Orleans is, is a city that obviously I love so much because I grew up there. I haven't spent a lot of time there recently because my parents – you know, they moved out to California to be near us and, and all the grandkids and such. But um, the spirit of that city, man, and the ability to live, you know, a life that is, I think, at its core, steeped in family and enjoyment as opposed to the standard North American values of, uh, you know, capitalistic success. Um, I've always loved that about New Orleans. It, in, in many ways, it feels like, one of the most, um, I don't know, it's just one of the most laid back cities we have here. So I, I hope you, I hope you go there and I hope you, uh, you know, overeat a lot for the first two or three years, put on like 30 pounds and then <laughs> reel it back. That's basically what happens. Yeah. That's, that's the big danger once you get there. Yeah. It, what you said is exactly right. And that's, that's why me and my wife ended up, uh, uh, going, uh, you know, getting a place there, it, it is, there's just a feeling, even as a tourist, when we were going and visiting, there, there's a feeling of welcomeness um, oh, yeah. in the city that is just overwhelming. Yeah. And, you know, there's this thing that I've always loved about um, this guy, Ram Dass, who's just this wonderful thinker. And he, 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 he always says, you know, life, the secret of life is simple. We're all just walking each other home. And when I think about that, I think about, honestly, I think about New Orleans because that is a city, man, where people are just like, I could destroy myself trying to get some sort of massive ego-driven career or achievement, or I can just get my people and get some good food and some good drinks and go swimming and take a walk. And that is, uh, that's not a bad way to live. So I, I hope it goes well for you. Oh, appreciate it. That sounds like a pretty good plan for all of us. Yeah, Mark, uh, we're looking forward yeah. to Room 104, uh, Friday the 24th. The final season premieres on HBO. Always great to talk with you. Thanks so much, and uh, give our best to Katie, and, and stay well. All right. Take care of Bangor for me. Thanks, guys. That's Mark Duplass talking about uh, Room 104 and the morning show and more with us here on Downtown, the podcast. Uh, we'll pause, get a quick word from our friends at Cross Insurance, and when we come back, we talk with Curtis Armstrong, Booger from Revenge of the Nerds, and so much more than that, straight ahead here on Downtown, the podcast. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Downtown, the podcast starred as Herbert Viola, a great role on Moonlighting with 
Bruce Willis and Sybil Shepard. He was Tom Cruise's best buddy in risky business. Of course, Booger in Revenge of the Nerds, which uh, helped lead to his wonderful memoir from a few years ago. But he's had a remarkable career in a number of films and movies. He played uh, record of producer and executive Ahmet Erdogan in Ray, opposite Jamie Foxx. Uh, he was in Supernatural with a recurring role there. But we found through the years in our conversations with Curtis Armstrong that he's got he's got a lot of interests from uh, Sherlock Holmes to uh, P.G. Woodhouse, musically The Beatles, Harry Nielsen, and so much more. Always enjoyed the opportunity to talk with Curtis Armstrong. Here's our recent conversation on Downtown, the podcast. Curtis, thank you so much for coming on the show again and making some time for us today. We appreciate it. Oh, thank you very much, Rich. A lot of things to talk about today, but I wanted to pass along directly our condolences uh, at the loss of your dad uh, earlier this summer. Yes, thank you very much. Um, it was uh, it was definitely a difficult uh, time, of course, especially because uh, he died of COVID, which, I mean, it made it made the entire process as bad as it was. He was 92. So it was, it was not wholly unexpected that he would have health problems that could lead to that. But the, the fact of, of the fact that it was COVID meant that, uh, you know, we had to, we couldn't be with him. Mm. Um, and everyone knows now that that's uh, a new reality that as uh, as you're not allowed to be in the room, um, you wind up having to say goodbye remotely, which is uh, just awful. So that was a that was a bad um, that was a bad that was about a month ago now, I guess, or a little over a month. Um, but uh, I appreciate your condolences, and uh, you know I can only hope that this nightmare um season into it absolutely he's the one that introduced you to sherlock holmes yes he did um in 1964 we were living overseas in switzerland uh we he'd been transferred there and um there was no television there was no uh, we were mainly not allowed to even go to movie theaters in those days that was showing anything but cartoons. Um, and uh, so I did a lot of reading from an early age. And uh, at one point I had gone through whatever Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew books I had uh, accessible and he started giving me his books. And one of the first ones was The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. And it started a uh, a love of those books and ultimately that fandom that exists um, to this day. So, in fact, I was making a list uh, yesterday uh, in my journal, just out of curiosity at this point, since we've had COVID and since we've been essentially locked down um, that I was wondering how many books I had read since I've been sort of quarantined uh, or completely quarantined. And um, it came out to 32 books. 
um, since I'd say February or March. And one of them was a reread of The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. So uh, it really has stuck with me. Well, that's wonderful. Well, these are difficult times for everybody, but I, I know uh, so many of my friends that I've worked with in, in regional theater are, are in this boat of, of not knowing when their next job will be. For people like right. yourselves who do film and television, uh, it's still all up in the air. And, and the reality is that most working actors go from job to job, and the future is a big question mark right now. What's What's the biggest challenge of that for you? Um, I would say, um, well, I mean, it's, it's an enormous, it's an enormous stressful reality for everybody in the world. And sometimes I wonder for people who, for reasons like, uh, those faced by actors, for example, there are the people who are not working, which is stressful. There are the people who have to work. Mm. Uh, and for those people, it may be even more stressful. There is a, a, in fact, I believe it is more stressful. They have to go to the meatpacking plants. We don't. And um, so I, I sometimes, uh, whenever I'm feeling particularly stressed or, or feeling like I'll never, I'll never have another job or, you know, all of those things that, that occur to you when you've been away from work for a long time. Um, I think about the people who are being forced to do it and forced to go into environments that have sort of perpetuated this plague and they're doing it because they're essential um, and or they have no protection. Um, we are in a position where, you know, eventually somehow or other, we will probably go back to a sense of, of normalcy and a sense of, you know, getting production underway again. Um, but it won't be just as easy as saying, okay, we're opening up Hollywood. Um, we do have, have, uh, protections, um, in the unions, uh, particularly for SAG-AFTRA working very hard, but also the directors guild and the writers guild, everybody is working together with production on this to come up with protocols that will keep everyone safe or as safe as possible once this does start happening again. So I, I don't feel like, um, I don't feel like we're as, as people in my business are necessarily worse off, um, than uh, a lot of people, I think we're in the same boat with everybody, uh, and um, I, I, you know, I can't imagine when it's going to going to change. But um, you know, we take it uh, one day at a time. Everybody, you know, the the unions are in negotiations with producers about about the protocols. That that's an ongoing discussion. Um, so we'll just you know, see where it goes. I just hope everyone else winds up in the same, uh, with, the sa with that same sort of respect for their health and safety, teachers, for example, that actors are going to get. 
yeah, I'm looking forward to finding out what's happening with uh, me. Um, I teach high school and we're scheduled to go back in five or six weeks. And, uh, and while I want to get back, I want to see students and work with them, but I want it to be safe for me, for them and for their families as well. And, and it's uh, boy, it's, it's a scary time and not, I don't know. I don't know anybody who deals well with uncertainty, but I, I'm not cut out to deal with that particularly well. I like to have a plan. Right. Well, I mean, and we like to think that someone is taking all of these elements into consideration. Um, there has been, of course, no, uh, no uh, leadership at all in the federal government no. and the local and state governments are, are, you know, to one extent or another doing what they can. Um, there are extremes on both on both sides, those that are actually working to do it and those that are just sticking to uh, to Trump's uh, uh, belief in just, you know, it going away magically. Um, I think that's all going to, going to change within the next few weeks. I mean, when you're talking five or six weeks, I can't even imagine where we're going to be. Where the where the condition of the country is going to be in five weeks, uh, just going three days seems to change everything. Now, um, I, I, I we just the teachers concern me a lot. The schools concern me a lot. The students, and it's all intertwined. And we just we need somebody to take the reins here. And it's not going to be Trump clearly. We're talking with Curtis Armstrong here on downtown. Let's talk about uh, about happier things. I did not get to see Hamilton on Broadway, but like much of the rest of the world, I was glued to my television a couple of weeks ago when it debuted on uh, on Disney Plus. It was absolutely blown away by it, and I was so um, it was so heartwarming to read the story that was shared on social media uh, by a friend of yours uh, who worked with you on uh, King of the Nerds, uh, is that right. Anthony Carbone told a right. tremendous story about you, uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda, and friend of our show, Joanne Freeman. Can, can you relate some of that story? Because it was wonderful. <laughs> well, it, it, it went back to, to um, when I was doing uh, an episode of House, uh, Hugh Laurie's show. And Lynn and I had been cast in it. It was a, a, a season premiere. It was a two-hour episode where where House had been uh, put into a hospital. And uh, Lynn played one of the other, uh, Lynn and I both played other residents of this hospital. And um, I happened to be reading, this is years ago now, um, and before anyone knew anything about Hamilton. And Lynn, uh, I was reading a book about Aaron Burr called Fallen Founder by Nancy Eisenberg, and it's a biography of, of uh, Aaron Burr, which I read because I'm, an in, I'm interested in American history, and I had been reading it on the set, and I put it down on my chair and walked away, and a few minutes later heard a scream across the soundstage and it was Lynn saying whose book is this <laughs> whose book is this and I came over and I said it's mine and then he started uh in on talking about how he was working on a on a musical based on 
Alexander Hamilton. And so we started talking about that and it was all very funny. And, and then he, the next day, brought in his, his laptop and, uh, and gave me uh, head, headphones and I listened to some of his, his uh, uh, basic sort of demos from Hamilton, which were astonishing, but, but it was a strange thing because, of course, I was not listening to them in the context of the play. Right. And um, so years later, obviously, it opens at, at, uh, Lincoln, at uh, Lincoln Center. No, not Lincoln Center. Uh, Richard Rogers uh, Theater. In public, the public theater, well, the public. which I didn't see. I didn't see it when it was there, but then it was on Broadway. And I was there with my wife. We got tickets, and I mentioned it on Twitter that I was going. And uh, I didn't realize that Lynn was following me on Twitter, but he was. And he said, oh, you have to come backstage and blah, blah, blah. So after the show, and Anthony happened to be there. We didn't even know he was there. Uh, and, uh, we went backstage. Well, you didn't go, we went to the side, to the, uh, backstage door and there were, you know, crowds of people waiting to see Lynn and he went through all of them. It was great. And then he's, he was talking to us. He said, he said, listen, and I was with Elaine. So it's Elaine, me and Anthony. And Lynn said, you have to come with me because I'm going to a bar to meet Joanne Freeman, who is a Hamilton scholar, and um, you should come. And I said, well, I shouldn't. I didn't, you know, I, I, we don't want to interrupt. And and I remember Elaine just glaring at me, like, <laughs> what are you, out of your mind? And I said, okay, we'll go. And so the three of us walk over with Lynn to this bar where Joanne is sitting in a booth, and she had brought with her the uh, the uh, one of the pamphlets, the original pamphlet, mm. the actual thing in the, that she brought, uh, among other things, as sort of a show and tell thing for Lynn. So we're all sitting at the table with our drinks. Lynn, I believe, was having tea, um, but uh, the rest of us weren't, and. Um, he, yeah, it was, and she was passing this around for us. I mean, it was such an amazing experience. And uh, we were there for a couple of hours and then um, hit the road. So it, but it was one of the memorable nights of my life, I think, because it, uh, I wound up actually sending, I believe, sending Joanne copies of some of Washington Irving's journal about um, his, he had been present at Byrd's trial and wrote, not for publication, in his journal about Aaron Burr, his appearance, you know, just this sort of fly-on-the-wall thing about Burr's, uh, Burr's trial. And um, she had not seen it because it had never been published um, as part of, of Irving's actual journals. So... Uh, you know, that started up a friendship with Joanne. So we're still in touch. That's wonderful. We uh, she, we love having her on the show, and I could just wonderful. listen to her talk history all day long. She is uh, yeah. amazing. Yeah. That's uh, such a great story. She makes, she makes, Joanne makes history come alive 
uh, which sounds like, you know, that's sort of a typical thing that people say. In her case, it's actually true. Absolutely. I want to talk a little Beatles with you while we have you here as well. A couple anniversaries uh, this year, one of them being the 50th anniversary of the release of the final album, uh, Let It Be, which uh, is often uh, looked at askance by some critics as not being among the best Beatles work. How do you view it? Well, I always have, my my feeling about Let It Be was always a weird one because you remember, I mean, technically, of course, it's not the last album. Right. It's, it's the penultimate album because they did Abbey Road after that. But because of the delays in getting the film out, it was released after Abbey Road, which makes it the last album. But it, it really wasn't. And so it's, that's one thing. For me, when I first heard Let It Be, I didn't hear that version. Before the album came out, I knew a disc jockey in Detroit, a friend of mine, and he had somehow acquired the, uh, on a reel-to-reel tape, had acquired the bootleg, wow, uh, which was called Come Back, K-U-M, come back and it was the rough mix that was ultimately released as let it be naked uh, which was you came out in as let it be naked you know whenever it was 10 years ago or something and um he gave it to me to take home and listen and and my father had a reel-to-reel uh system so for me, the first time I ever hear those records was that version. And I knew what the story was. I knew this was them working out tracks for the cameras and all that. So for me, it was, I just thought it was fantastic because you were sort of listening to them without their pants on, which is how John, <laughs> I think, described it, um, with their tr- without their trousers. And... Um, so that was my introduction to the Let It Be album. And then the actual Let It Be album came out. But by the time it came out, we were able to see the movie in cinemas. And to me, I, it, it's not like it's my favorite album. I don't know if there's anybody who would say it's their favorite Beatle album. But it, when you saw it in the, in the context of the movie that it, it, it somehow made it, it is some of them worked better than others. I hated all of the choirs and the strings, mm. but some of the stuff like, uh, I've got a feeling, um, two of us, uh, I mean, mine, some of those, uh, I think work perfectly fine on the record. Um, uh, the main issues I had with it were the, you know, the uh, the overproduced Phil Spector, you know, um, stuff, which, you know, was to me abhorrent. Um, it, it didn't feel like the Beatles at all. Um, so it's, you know, it, it's like when people say, is Yellow Submarine your favorite? It's not, but it doesn't mean that I don't listen to it in, in the context of what it was, it's perfectly fine. Are you looking forward to the, the Peter Jackson film that I guess now has been delayed oh. till next year? 
Yeah, uh, I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, there's a book, actually. Wait a second. I've got it here. Hold on. Um, there's a book here. Uh, <clears throat> this came out years ago. I don't even know if it's still in print. Um, it's called Get Back, the Unauthorized Chronicle of the Beatles' Let It Be Disaster, <laughs> um, which, um, aside from sort of putting disaster in there, which leans a little heavily on uh, the author's idea. What it really is, is uh, they got all of the tapes, or a, a lot of the tapes at the time, so they transcribed everything that was being said. Some of these appeared when Let It Be Naked came out. There was, I don't know if it, they came out on, on the... Um, on the uh, CD or not, but I got the vinyl of that and it was coming with it was this eight inch vinyl, uh, which was uh, a sort of fly on the wall thing from the let it be sessions. Um, and so you went with the book. What's great. The authors were Doug Sulpe and Ray Schweigart. And or Schweigart, I don't know, <laughs> and um, and it gives you a, a really valuable sort of insight into what was going on at the time, and you know once you start putting together, piecing together all of the uh, the stuff that didn't come out in Michael Lindsay Hogg's movie, um, you begin to see that there were certainly aspects of it that weren't nightmarish and horrible. And, um, but when you're making a, a documentary, you know, you have to come from a perspective. <laughs> but what made Let It Be funny, I, I read this not long ago, I think. It was an interview with Michael Lindsay Hogg, who had worked with the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. And he said the funny thing for him was, the difficult thing was, with the Rolling Stones, if you were filming Rolling Stones, you basically came to them with an idea, and you went to Mick and Charlie. <laughs> Mick and Charlie were the ones who were in charge of everything. And it was easy, because they, it was two guys, they either said yes or no, and that was it. They seem to be on the same page. He said, with the Beatles, it's like four lions in a cage and you throw in a piece of raw meat and they, all four of them are batting it around and all four of them have ideas and, and uh, it makes it a lot more difficult to get anything done, especially if you're an outsider. So uh, he definitely had challenges with that, with that, which Peter Jackson doesn't have. Uh, in quite the same way. And uh, I've talked to somebody, this is how secret it is. I talked to somebody who talked to a friend of his who had seen it. I mean, it's like this guy's a big agent in New York, but he didn't see it. So somebody else saw it and told him about it. And it sounds like, um, in his words, it will blow our minds. But I, I, I think hyperbole aside, um, the trick is not looking forward to it too much. But I think any new uh, take on this, even on this period, uh, is something that that I'm looking forward to. 
I'm fascinated, too. You, you mentioned the radio station and your friend who had the bootleg. We were talking with Marshall Crenshaw, who grew up in the Detroit area just a, a few weeks back. And he talked about, and I wonder if it's the same station, uh, the radio station that he listened to all the time as a kid and what an influence it was on his musical taste and then later on his songwriting. Yeah, no, this was, this was, uh, I, the funny thing about this was, this was a, a like a high school radio station. Wow. It was operating out of Southfield, Michigan. And, you know, it had a, it had a, uh, I'd say, uh, maybe within blocks, people could listen to it. It was that small. Uh, but this guy knew somebody, you know, it's all, <laughs> it, it was a fairly tightly knit group. Uh, I forget even what the call letters were for it now, uh, but he was uh, a very, very good friend of mine, and uh, he was just one of the disc jockeys at this little radio station, and he got it. So, yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, but Marshall Marshall went to the same high school uh, that I did. Oh, and I didn't he, know that. Oh yeah, he was the, my first year in high school was his last. So the first. Uh, the first end of the year uh, party at our high school when I was in 10th grade, um, Marshall was playing in the gym, uh, not in the gym, in the, uh, in the uh, dining room, the uh, cafeteria. The band was set up in the cafeteria. And uh, uh, a friend of mine, Mike O'Brien, at the time was the drummer, and um, and uh, that was that was Marshall's last last year there. So I didn't know him. I mean, he was he was in a whole other world from me. I didn't know anybody at that point. <laughs> That's, the world uh, is a small, so wonderful met, place, uh, though. <laughs> yeah, I've never met Marshall, but we were at the same high school at the same time. That's very cool. Uh, do you remember where you were and, and what your reaction was when when it became official? 50 some years ago that the Beatles had broken up? I was, uh, the Paul quits the Beatles story. Um, I seen, uh, I don't, I don't really remember. My memory was that I was in London because I was in London in the seventies a lot, but I don't think that's true. I think I must've been in Detroit and I think, you know, as a fan, I probably had heard rumors of this, you know. But at the same time, pretty quickly, um, I mean, I remember the just the heartbreak of listening to stuff like Plastic Ono Band um, and, you know, the, the dream is over, or that whole thing. Mm. As a fan, that was hard to listen to. But for a while, what I was doing was listening to the four of them as individual players, each of them like having a discussion, you know, right, right. That, that, you know, and then, you know, with Ringo's album in 73 coming out and all three of them on it, I guess there was a period of time where I thought I, I have a better memory of when when they when they uh, when they quit touring. <laughs> in 66 right. I, I i remember you know that moment of never being able of realizing i'd never see them live um 
But, you know, so I, I guess there was a period in the early 70s where I thought, well, all is not lost. You know, we, you know, those of us who were fans were always looking for, for hints and indications that they were going to get back together again. Did you see uh, the, the story recently? I think it came from Ringo that they actually considered getting back together in 1976 for a ridiculous amount of money. But the opening act was, I guess, a, a man wrestling a shark. And they all thought this is this just seems a little bit too strange, too shaky. I, I have never heard that story. A man wrestling a shark? Yeah. Um, I mean, they were always getting... Sid Bernstein was the guy in New York when I was living there in the mid-'70s. Um, he, was, he was the guy who was trying to get, get them back together again and offered them this massive amount of money. And that was what was... And which they said no to. I never heard the shark wrestling the guy. But... Um, but, but that's, um, isn't that what that led was, to the Lorne Michaels? Exactly. <laughs> that was what led to George... You're being offered, you know, $7,500 or them being offered $7,500. And John and Paul, as it happens, were at the Dakota watching the show. Right. And actually discussed going down in a cab and claiming their cut, um, <laughs> which I still wish they'd done. We're talking with Curtis Armstrong. Uh, what did you think of the, uh, the Lost and Found album that was uh, put together um, of, of Harry Nilsson's final recordings? I think they did uh, an incredible job with what they had, which was pretty ragged. Um, I had heard, again, it was sort of like, like uh, the Let It Be recordings. I'd heard the demos of those songs, except for Lost and Found, which I'd never heard. Um, but I'd heard them over the years, different, you know, I'd found bootlegs and various stuff. Um, but um, given the the impossibility of, you know, having Harry be a part of it, um, it was, I thought, an admirable job. And uh, I've listened to it a number of times. I think they did a great job with it. Yeah, we had, uh, we had Keith on uh, to, and talked about how surreal yeah. it was playing on his dad's album. Yeah, well, the first I knew about it was I'd run, I, I live down the street from Jim, Jim and Cynthia Keltner. Oh, they okay. live on the same street. And I was at the uh, grocery store and ran into Sin, and we were talking, and uh, uh, I happened to be wearing a Nilsson T-shirt at the time, and uh, she said, oh, it's so funny, Jim was just working on the new album. <laughs> and it was the first I'd heard that they were going to release it, um, and it, that, you know, he was he was obviously a very good friend of Harry's and the family, and... Um, it's, it was only right that Keltner be there. That's great. Great stuff. Uh, Curtis, it's always so good to talk with you. We really appreciate you making some time for us here this afternoon. Thanks, as always. Well, I appreciate it, Rich. Keep up the good work and uh, take care. Thank you. Stay safe and, and be well, and hopefully we can all get back to work safely soon. I hope so. All right. Thanks, Curtis. Take care. Bye. Just one of our favorite guys, uh, such a, a down-to-earth good guy and so many wonderful stories every time we talk with Curtis Armstrong. Yes, that uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda story. Oh, man. <laughs>
It's just amazing. Wouldn't you just just want to be a, a fly on the wall for that? Yeah, I wouldn't even have to be part of the conversation. No. I'll just sit there and eat quietly while they talk. <laughs> that's all. Just, yeah. Mm. Yep, that's fine. Just to be that was great. And, and the Marshall Crenshaw connection. Who knew? It's a small downtown world. <laughs> it is indeed. Now, that was great. Uh, our thanks to Curtis Armstrong and the wonderful Mark Duplass as well. Again, Room 104. The new season, the final season, premieres Friday, July 24th. Thanks to Curtis. Thanks to Mark. Thanks to you for being with us this week. We remind you, we're brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. We'll see you next time here on Downtown the Pod.